reading God's word now from the New Testament. The scriptures of the New Testament we're going to read from Colossians in chapter 1. Um, and we'll read from verse 21. Verse 21 through to the end of chapter 1, that's verse 29. We read through from verses 1 to 20 this morning. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I Paul have become a servant now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Now this morning we looked at Colossae. It's one of the three uh, towns in the valley of the river Lycus and the river Meander. A wonderful name for the river, I think. The river Meander. <laughs> and there were three cities, as we know. Um, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis, all in the valley of the river Lycus. And <clears throat> Colossae was about 15 kilometers from Laodicea. Um, it declined in favour of Laodicea for trade and elsewhere in other areas of life. It declined um, probably when Paul was in Ephesus. Paul had not yet visited the church there and Philemon and his slave Onesiphorus. Um, they were members of the Colossian church which was probably founded by Epaphras as we saw this morning in the reading. The problem was, very soon after Paul had been anywhere, his footsteps were dogged by people who tried to undermine his message. 
or his character. To undermine his character, they said, uh, he's not truly a servant of God. He never lived with Jesus. He never knew the teaching of Jesus like the disciples did. And uh, his, his, his bodily presence is weak. We're not quite sure what they meant by that. His bodily presence is weak. And his speech is contemptible. It, was, it wasn't very complimentary towards the apostle. Um, but you know, the scholars aren't convinced about what was wrong with Paul. Elsewhere in, the, in his writings, he talks about his thorn in the flesh, which was some sort of physical ailment. And some folk think it was epilepsy. Other folk think it was maybe some sort of eye disease, some sort of trachoma or something like that. Um, and however it was, he was criticised for his bodily presence being weak and his speech was contemptible. Some folk think he had a lisp. Uh, other folk think um, he didn't have the the presence of the great auditors because he was, his name after all was Paulos, wasn't it? Paulos means a wee man. <laughs> now some wee men have big voices, we know that. Yeah, I wrote a book, a life story of Jock Troop and Jock Troop was just a, a wee man, he had huge hands. He could lift up a, a fully inflated football with one hand, no bother. So his neighbour told me. Very, very strong man. Just a small man. And folk measured his voice, same as they did in earlier generations. Um, George Whitfield uh, had a wonderful voice for declaring God's message. He said he would preach till he felt his bits. Which is <laughs> quite a good sta statement of his intention. And he could be heard a mile away. There's a wonderful story about a farmhand leaning on a gate listening to George Whitfield about a mile away. <laughs> and he could make out every word. In fact, the farmhand became a Christian as a result of hearing the message. An amazing man. He preached about a thousand sermons a year for 30 years before he finally collapsed and fell to bits, as he said. And one of the things was uh, with Jock Troop. They measured Jock Troop's voice. He could be heard in Glasgow. If you're familiar with Glasgow, he could be heard from Glasgow Cross to where Lewis's used to be. Debenham's is there now. I'm not sure if Debenham's is still there. But he could be heard above the noise of the tramcars across that distance. And uh, a doctor said to him, he burst a blood vessel in his throat. And the doctor said to him, if you don't give up this preaching, Mr. Troop, you'll be dead within a year. And he said, well, I want to die with my boots on. <laughs> and he did. He was preaching on Easter Sunday evening and he announced his text, which was, you must be born again. He was preaching in America. You must be born again. And he collapsed. And then he said his wife's name and within three minutes he was in the presence of the Lord. 
So the Apostle Paul was a, probably a wee man, a man of small physical stature. But wherever he went, um, there was false teaching. What, what was the false teaching here? We spoke, we spoke about it this morning, that uh, whenever you get a frosty reception and a cold outlook, the best plan is to put on a good fire. And both in Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul does that. He kindles a good fire against the false teaching. And as far as you can extract the information about it from the letter, um, there were several features of the false teaching. First of all, they believed in the powers of the spirit world were eclipsing the power of Christ. And so they said, what's all this stuff about Jesus? Um, they said there are powers in the spirit world that are far more <coughs> effective than the message of a poor carpenter who died on a cross. So that was one feature of the false teaching. Second thing was an emphasis on feasts and fasts, new moons and Sabbaths and circumcision. They went by the calendar. And there are some folks still like that today who go by the calendar and uh, they don't listen to the the message that's relevant for every day life. And that's a second feature of the false teaching. A third aspect of the false teaching was the higher philosophy, where they would introduce you to a higher form of learning than you know with the Christian gospel. And they use a whole lot of worries, uh, words like knowledge, wisdom, mystery and fullness and so in this wonderful passage from verses 15 through to verse 23 the apostle Paul kindles his fire uh, and combats the false teaching of the false teachers in his time and helps us tonight to focus on Christ because the Christianity is Christ. That's the one we should be, he is the one we should be concentrating on. And in this passage, uh, from that verse 15 to verse 22, it, it gives us a four-point focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is helpful for us tonight. Here's the first one. He is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What a wonderful description of the Lord Jesus. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, over all <coughs> creation. <clears throat> the, the very word image conveys good ideas to us. Because right back in the time of the Apostle Paul, in the time of the Roman Empire, they were stamping out coins. And you know how when you're making a coin, you need an image to stamp out the image of the coin um, 
on the <coughs> on the metal, and they're able to do it in such a way that you get an exact image reproduced in the coinage. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that if you want to know about God, you have to know about Christ, because He is the image of the invisible God. He gives God a face, so to put it. It's an image of reality. It's not about shadows, it's about reality. And it's the kind of reality you see stamped out on coinage. And it's the kind of definition of a person you see. And sometimes we get our photographs taken and we say, hey, is that me? <laughs> and you look at the photograph, especially passport photographs or bus passes, and you look at the picture and you think, is that really like me? But what Paul is saying here is, the Lord Jesus Christ is really like God and is in fact a perfect, exact, defining image of God the Father. He said to Philip, and Philip says, show us the Father, one of his disciples, show us the Father and that's enough for us. And Jesus speaks back to him and he says, have you been so long with me, Philip, and yet you haven't known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God was in Christ, Paul says in his letter. He was in, God was in Christ and the reproduction of God's image is seen in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one is, he's the bearer of God's character. And we're meant to think when we, we examine the Gospels that uh, we see God in action in the person of Christ. And uh, every time the Lord Jesus Christ is moved with compassion. That happens quite a lot in the Gospels. Um, he's moved with compassion because he's reacting as God the Father would react to any situation. When he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. What does it mean? It means he had a gut reaction to human need. If he saw the crowd, he was moved at the, the crowd's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed leadership. That's something we're being overcome with in our nation right now, isn't it? We need leaders. Where are the leaders? Can we trust them? Can you trust a man with the morals of a ferret who's put in charge of your nation? What's happening here? When the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, and he acted with compassion. He had a gut reaction to human need. If he saw the crowd and they were hungry, he fed them. If they were lost, he found them. Um, a whole lot of things about the crowds. If they were sick, he healed them. The Lord Jesus Christ was a wonderful, wonderful representation of God the Father. And this is reality. He who has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. That's the first thing. He's the bearer of God's 
character. The second aspect of this fourfold focus is the focus of God's creation. In verse 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Wonderful description. If the first one's a wonderful description of respect, of God's character, the second one is a wonderful picture of reality and honour. Everything came through the sun. Read about it in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And God spoke into the light. And he made darkness as well. And he was such a wonderful God. And if you examine the characters at work in creation... You find that God the Father speaks the word of creation. Where am I? I must have it here. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I can't read my own writing. I've got the activity of God. As the subject of the sentence, God said, God created. Um, right through Genesis chapter 1. And then you've got the productivity of God, the beauty of creation, the balance of creation. It's just so wonderful. God made us. We're just not so far away from the sun that will freeze and not so near the sun that will fry. <laughs> and our earth is just the right place. God put it in place. I was singing in the bathroom this week. My Father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny. A God of might and miracle is written in the sky. Yeah. It took a miracle to put the stars in space. It took a miracle to put the worlds in place. And when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. So when God acted in creation, how did he act? Well, he acted through the Word. He spoke the Word. And the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament is called the Word in Genesis in John chapter 1. He is the Word. He's the bearer of God's character. And he's the focus of God's creation. And you've got the, the activity of God's and the productivity of God, and then the personality of God in Genesis 1. The creative father, the executive son, um, and the imminent spirit are all there like a, like a mother hen hatching out its eggs. God was there at creation, and the Lord Jesus Christ was present as the focus of God's creation. And he piles up all, all the... The prepositions there in Colossians 1. Let's go back to verse 
15, 16, for by him all things were created. And he, he specifies them. Things in heaven, things in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He piles up all the prepositions. By him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What a wonderful saviour. He's the focus of God's creation. It's by him a source for him as goal, before all things in priority and in all things in intimacy. In 1964, the month of August, we went on our honeymoon to that sun-kissed resort, Port Rush. And part of our prenuptial agreement was that there wouldn't be any knitting on the honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it rained nearly all the time. And we had to change the rules. And so Jean went out and she bought a, a pile of iron wool, you know, Irish iron wool, and some knitting pins. And she didn't just sit there and say, I'll try and knit something, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like that at all. She had a pattern to work to. And she knitted me a cardigan loving every stitch with chocolate buttons <laughs> and, and, and uh, it was all there, it was all in order it was all according to the pattern God has a pattern in his world, he made it like that and uh, the executive officer of the pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ wonderful in him, Paul says all things Hold together. The best translation I can get for the Greek word is cohere. Everything hangs together. You know, when you finish something, you hold it up. Oh dear. Maybe if you're not too good at knitting, you won't produce a good garment. I remember at school, in primary four, Mrs. Dow thought it would be a good thing for the boys to learn to knit. And one guy, he thought that was a, an ex salt in his manhood. Well, he was only eight year old, you know. And he didn't want in it, you know. And then the, he got a big lecture from the teacher and he submitted and things changed because he wanted to be first finished now and he's not like a mad fury. And the teacher had said, um, if you make a mistake, bring it out immediately and I will fix it. So, of course, Alec Mackay was first finished and uh, <laughs> he took out his knitting. He didn't know how to cast off and so the teacher held up the knitting. There was a big hole about the sixth row at which point the teacher started rip, 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 rip. All the, it was terrible. It was, uh, it was abusive. And when she started that, Alec Mackay started punching the teacher <laughs> and they sent for the headmaster and they started punching the headmaster and he was sent to the educational psychologist every week for about two years. As a teacher, they should have been the educational psychologist. But she wasn't pleased at the lack of the pattern 
in the garment, the scarf that Alec Mackay had produced. It, it was like that right through school. I was in his class in secondary school. And I remember he got the belt for filling in a map of the, of the British Isles upside down. <laughs> and he got abuse, dog's abuse for that from the geography teacher. And he said, that's how you put it on my desk. <laughs> and so he, was, he did not have a good reputation in the school. But you know, when the Lord made our world, the Lord Jesus was the executive officer of everything that happened. And the whole thing held together perfectly in him. He's the bearer of God's character and he's the focus of God's creation. An image of reality and an image of respect. And then an image of regulation. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. How wonderful. He's the bearer of God's character. He's the focus of God's creation. He's the director of God's church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the preeminence, the supremacy. What a wonderful saviour we have. He's the director of God's church. He's his head. And the regulation of the body of Christ, the church, is under his control. Just as in our human body, the head operates our hands and our feet and our legs. Um, this wonderful God has given us a great director the great director is head and firstborn. He has no rivals um, to his leadership in creation and in salvation. He's the director of God's church, the head of the body. He is the body, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's He's the, the number one in the series of acts that God the Father initiated through his, not only his cross, but also his resurrection. He's a wonderful director of God's church, the head and the firstborn. So Paul's focusing on Christ. He wants us to focus on Christ. And think of him in these terms. He's the bearer of God's character. That's reality. He's the focus of God's creation. That's respect and honour. He's the director of God's church. That's regulation from the directorship of the head. Um, and because he's a... Paul calls it in Romans. He's the firstborn of a great brotherhood. And you're not thinking about the Freemasons, by the way. The firstborn of a great brotherhood of believers throughout the whole wide earth um, who form his church. And then the fourth one, verses 19 to 22. 
We'll finish off with this. You've got reconciliation here. You've got reality, respect, regulation, and reconciliation. That's a word that's used. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Back in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, which is wonderful. He's the agent of God's change. That's the fourth thing. He's the bearer of God's character, the focus of God's creation, the director of God's church, and the agent of God's change. And a key word in it is reconciliation, which is a big word. Reconciliation. The, the New English Bible tries to put it simply. Dr. Paisley said the New English Bible was neither new nor English nor Bible. But that's by the way. <laughs> by the way, um, in the New English Bible, the translation puts it like this. Through Christ, God has turned enemies into friends. That's the lovely concept of reconciliation. God's work in the world through Christ is to turn enemies into friends. And that's what he does. And some folk have been greatly changed by Christ and brought into his family and used in his service in the church because Jesus is the agent of God's change. There was a, a famous baseball player in America called Billy Sunday. Have you heard of him? Billy Sunday, he was a, I think he played for the, the White Sox. He was a terrific baseball player. And he got converted. And he applied for a job with the YMCA in America. And he went up for interview. And the panel were quite severe with him. One of them said to him, How can you be so sure, Mr. Sunday? that you have been born again as a Christian. And Billy Sunday said, well, I was there when it happened. <laughs> and I ought to know. And each one of us can say that that's our testimony. I was there when it happened. And I ought to know. I remember my own experience. I heard a wee man speaking... Oh, he was a wee shilpit creator. Later on, I was able, privileged to write to him and to tell him that I had trusted the Lord through his preaching. And he had a kind of high-pitched voice, you know. <laughs> Some Glasgow people have a high-pitched voice, and he noticed that. And he, he said, and he also had a hanky up his sleeve, which, I mean, my father never had a hanky up his sleeve. And this wee guy in a hanky up his sleeve in a nice suit and all that. And uh, he said, if you had been the only sinner in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ would still have come and died for you. And I was 12 years old and I'm sitting here 
one of the first times I'd ever heard the gospel. And it was as if God hit me with an uppercut. <laughs> I thought, imagine Jesus doing that for me. And on the way home, along the canal bank, down to the piggery cottage that we lived in, upstairs, no carpets, we didn't have carpets, we just had a few rugs here and there. And I knelt down on what my mother called the wax cloth. You ever heard of that expression? <laughs> she called it the wax cloth. And I knelt down in the wax cloth beside my bed and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to become my saviour. I was there when it happened. <laughs> and I ought to know. And that's how Jesus works in our lives. He turns enemies into friends. I was the enemy of God. One of the boys in my class was a Christian and I gave him the life of Riley. I persecuted him, even as a youngster. And then he became one of my greatest friends. God turned me from an enemy into a friend. He turned chaos into cosmos in our lives. Many of our lives are chaos. Many of our lives and bonus tonight are chaos. They don't know where they're going, what they should be doing, how they should be spending their time and their money, and so on. And God wants to turn enemies into friends. He wants to turn chaos into cosmos. He wants to turn battlers into believers. And it's wonderful to know that that God can do that for us. And we can go to bed at night and put our head in the pillow and we can sleep away and we can be at peace with God. Now, I can tell you there's a qualitative distinction between the funeral of a Christian and the, funer the, the funeral of an un-Christian, you know. And we're all different. The man in the crematorium said to me, he said, when it's a Buddhist funeral, we put up a statue of the Buddha, George. Yeah, when it's uh, a Catholic funeral, we put up a crucifix. When it's a, a Christian, a Protestant funeral, we put up a cross. He said, what could I put up for a humanist funeral? I said, I really don't know, unless you put up a frame all dressed up and know where to go. And he laughed. He said, no, I couldn't do that. I'd get hung if I did that. <laughs> I said, well, that's it. Without Christ, we're lost. We've nowhere to go. And yet, in this wonderful text, he tells us that the Lord Jesus has reconciled us by Christ's physical presence, by his physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Once you were alienated, enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but you, under Christ, have experienced the work of the agent of God's change, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we repent, as we believe, we are turned from enemies into friends. And it's recognisable. I had a pupil, 15-year-old Big Davy. He came to see me one day and he said, 
Esther, are you truly happy? That's, that's a strange question coming from David. I won't give you a surname. That's a strange question coming from David. What's his name? I said, why do you ask me that? He says, well, I asked all Wolfie. Glasgow children are a bit cheeky at times, you know. And all Wolfie was Mr. Wolfson, the physics teacher. He says, I asked all Wolfie. And he said, go and ask Mr. Mitchell. Happiness is his department. I think that's one of the biggest compliments I was paid. Happiness is his department. <laughs> and he says, have you got the joy of Jesus in your heart? I said, got it in one kid. <laughs> and he would have been quite happy that I had the joy of Jesus in my heart. This is wonderful. We can go into this week. The rain can pelt all week if it likes. We don't want it like a nice week, wouldn't we? But the rain can pelt all week. And we can be happy in Christ. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for the goodness of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel. We thank you he is the bearer of God's character. We can look him straight in the face and see what God is like. We thank you he is the focus of God's creation, who deserves our highest respect and honour by him as source for him as goal, before everything in priority, in all in intimacy. We thank you he is the director of God's church, turning chaos into cosmos in our lives, turning enemies into friends, turning battlers into believers. And we thank you for the experience of sweetly believing in such a wonderful Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing our closing hymn. It's number one three four six.